1981, in Minnesota, a radio station announcer came on the air to report a story about a stolen car in California. Police <laughs> were staging an intense search nationwide for the vehicle and for the driver. And they were contacting local radio stations and television stations, and they were trying to get the word out about this stolen car. And they were trying to catch the thief, and they were really trying to catch the thief for the thief's own good. On the front seat, in the passenger side of that car, car realized that the car had been stolen, they went to the police and they said, there's a real problem. Because what I had done is I had poisoned that box of crackers because I was going to use it to poison the rats in my home. And there is a lethal box of crackers sitting on the passenger seat and you can't tell that they're poisonous. And so whoever stole that car, if they get hungry, they're probably going to die. Unknown to the thief, there was that box of crackers laced with poison. And now the police and the owner of that car, which was a Volkswagen bug, were more interested in apprehending the thief to save the thief's life than even to recover the car. Often when we run from God... We feel like we're trying to escape his punishment, escape the reality of sin. But here's the truth. When God is pursuing us, he's not pursuing you to punish you. He's pursuing you to rescue you. God is pursuing you to rescue you, and you are eluding his rescue when you run. When I set out to preach this book of Hosea, I was reading it, and as I read through the chapters, I thought the real challenge in preaching Hosea is that the themes might become repetitive. And I don't want you to come to church and say, well, you know, Chad's going to say the same thing over and over again in this book. And so it's always in my mind, you know, how can I preach this and, and have, say something that will be new? But also, the other thing in my mind is that God never wastes words. So if he repeats something, he repeats it for a reason. Because he wants us to get it. And repetitiveness, repetition, is the key many times to education. Where God says the same thing over and over again. Then he keeps saying, remember this, remember this, remember this. Because we're hard of learning and we're, and we're, we're easy to forget the things that we need to know about God. So the box of crackers is on the seat again. <laughs> we were talking about sin last week. We're talking about it again this week. And I think you'll find it to be a theme in the book of Hosea. The box of crackers on the seat. There's real danger at hand. And just like that thief did not understand what that box of crackers was, we often don't understand the power and the danger of sin. It's right here. It's within an arm's reach. I know I don't often think of the power or the danger of sin. 
And yet in preparing the sermon this week, I've been convicted about those boxes of crackers that are on the seat in my life that need to be tossed out the window. And the rescue that God is offering to us cannot be taken up without repentance, without our decision to go the other way, without our acknowledgement that this sin will ruin us and lead us to death. Somehow, in some way, sin will always destroy And maybe you could say, I can testify to that. I can tell you that in my life, when I've ignored God's will, and I've gone my own way, when I've run headlong towards hell, it is ruined and destroyed. But when I've turned and I've sought the Lord to know Him and to obey Him, I've been blessed. The big idea here is simple today. Rejecting the knowledge of God leads to sin. And sin leads to ruin. Rejecting the knowledge of God leads to sin, and sin leads to ruin. This is what was happening here in the nation of Israel. So I've organized Hosea chapter 4 into five points, verses 1 through 3. Talk about how sin has a wide range and a far reach. In verses 4 through 9, we learn that negligent leaders are to blame for the fact that the people don't know God. In verses 10 through 14, we see that a society that loses its mind sexually will be ruined. Verses 15 through 18 gives us a warning to steer clear of those who would lead us into sin. And verse 19 tells us that sin always leads to shame. Sin always leads to regret. Sin is bad for us. Sin hurts us. This is why the Lord doesn't want this for us. Now, normally when you preach through a passage like this, I'll say, I'm going to tell you what this passage means, what it meant to the original audience, and then uh, we'll we'll talk about how uh, we can apply this. This passage is very interesting in that because it's just so clear about sin, because it takes sin head on, you can pretty much take the words of this passage and apply them directly to your life. They're going to be applicable to whatever's going on. You'll, you'll find it pretty amazing to what's going on in our lives and what's going on in our country. The poem sort of reads like an argument, a controversy, an indictment, a quarrel that God has with his people. So look there in verse 1 as we see the far range and far reach of sin. Hear the words of the Lord, O children of Israel. Speaking to the northern kingdom here. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, this land that God had given them. He says there's no no faithfulness, there's no steadfast love, and there's no knowledge of God in the land. But what is there in verse 2? There is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing of adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. They are breaking all all of the commandments. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Sin is so severe in this nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, that the judgment and the consequences are affecting the land affecting the animals that even live there. These could be natural consequences. They could be God's judgment. But the people and the animals 
are languishing because there is such wickedness in the land. And we can think about that, how sin affects our society, doesn't it? Have you noticed how frustrating it is if you go into a Walgreens or into a store in a big city and you say, I want to get a bottle of formula or I want to buy some medicine. Have you noticed now what the trend is? That you have to go into the... Lonnie's like, no, I don't go to those big cities. I <laughs> just stay here and go to Cub Drug. But, the, but the, the, what they've done is they've put all of this medicine and all of the diapers and all the formula and the stuff that's expensive is behind glass, plexiglass, or it's behind cages. And this is something in, in larger cities where people are lamenting over this. We can't go to the store. Everything is locked up. We have to get someone to come and unlock the, the, the items that we used to just be able to go in and buy why is it this way because in in cities like san francisco the theft is so rampant the lawlessness and the sin is so rampant that the stores not only are putting their merchandise behind glass they're closing down altogether and so cities that used to enjoy a target or a walmart or a, a hamburger place are having to close down because they say we can't stop the people from breaking into cars robbing people at gunpoint Sin leads to ruin. Sin leads to suffering and languishing. Sin has a consequence. And why in the nation of Israel was this happening? Why were the people languishing? Why are the people languishing in our own country? Because there's no knowledge of God in the land. In verse 1. There's no relationship with Him. Nobody is faithful to Him. Nobody loves Him. Nobody understands his will and his ways because they don't know how he's revealed himself. This is the evidence against them. There's sin everywhere and and you don't know me. Sin is like that kind of an infection, isn't it? Sort of like the way the flu is run through all of town. Well, sin touches everything and it ruins everything. Then look at verses 4 through 9. We see who is to blame. And the Lord, through Hosea, tells the people that their leaders are to blame. Verse 4 is sort of interesting in the way it's written. He says, Yet let no one contend, let none accuse, for my contention is with you, O priest. As he brings up the quarrel and he says, Here's the problem I have. There's sin in the land and everybody's suffering. And it's almost like we're expecting the priest to say, Oh, it's their fault. It's their fault. Am I... There we go, now I'm on. It's, now I'm really loud. Uh, it's their fault, it's their fault. And maybe the priest would be pointing a finger. And God says, don't point your finger. Don't speak up. Don't accuse. For my contention is with you, O priest. The priests are told to keep quiet. And then he starts to describe the priests and the prophets of God there in the land. He says, you shall stumble by day. And the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. The mother there meaning the nation of Israel. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That's probably one of the most famous verses in this passage. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. What was our scripture passage that we chose today? The, what is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. And when you reject the knowledge of God, when you reject uh, the, the, the knowing God and fearing God, you reject wisdom. 
And so he says, because they've rejected knowledge, because they've rejected fear of the Lord, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, that's how we know what we're talking about here when he says you've rejected knowledge and you're destroyed for a lack of knowledge, what they have done is they have failed to obey the law, they've failed to learn the law, and they have failed to teach the law. And he says, because you've done this, O priest, I will forget your children. Remember, priesthood, the priesthood was passed along through the family line, through the Levites. And so the fathers were priests and the sons were priests. It was inherited. And the Lord says, that's about to end because I'm about to wipe out your nation. The priests here are described as stumbling in the daytime and stumbling at night. The imagery there is priests that are blind or drunk, and they're not leading people toward the Lord. Listen, those who are unfit to follow uh, are unfit to follow because they don't know how to get to where you need to go. And they can't see the way. So what good is a blind or a drunk priest or prophet? If they can't even get to where they're going without stumbling, they're not fit to follow. Their job is to teach the people. But the Lord says they've neglected their duties. And the way he describes the result of their neglect is he says, because you failed to do your job, my people are destroyed. They're not your people, priest. They're my people. And they're being destroyed because you have failed in your calling and you have failed in in obeying my commands to you. Look at all the commandment breaking taking place in verses 1 through 3. Ignorance of the covenant. They weren't teaching the people the things of God. And so I read this and I thought of my job. And this is a great instruction to the preachers and to the Sunday school teachers to keep our eyes on the ball, to remember what we are to be doing in our classes. We are there, yes, to have fellowship and we're here uh, to exhort and exalt, but one of my primary duties is to make sure that we're up here preaching the Word of God. The leaders here are being called out because they're not doing their jobs. But I also know that the Lord had told these people in Exodus chapter 19 that they were to be a kingdom of priests. And we are told in 1 Peter chapter 2 that all God's people are priests. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. But when God's people, the church, when we fail to live up to the high calling of being a chosen race, and a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, and a people for His own possession. And if we fail to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light, then there's no salt, and there's no light, and there's no north star. Listen, if Christians who have the Bible and know the truth, if we don't hold the line, there's no one left to hold it. And what happens when no one holds the line? The people of God and the people around us are destroyed because they don't know God. Verse 7, he continues his complaint against the priests. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. But I will change their glory into shame. Remember, sin always leads to regret and shame. Look how he describes the priests in verse 8. They feed on the sin of my people. And they are greedy for their iniquity. What's happening there? Whenever someone would come into the temple to make an offering, when someone would go to the, the religious places in the north and they would want to make an offering 
to the priests. Well, the, the, the priests should be standing there glad that the person is repenting. The priest should be there thinking this person wants to be made right with God. But what did the priest think when he saw the person bring the offering and the sacrifice? Ooh, let's have some lamb. Let's have some steak. The priest was hoping the people would sin so that they would bring him something good to eat. They were taking advantage of their office. They were taking advantage of the position that God had placed them in. And they were greedy for the people to sin. They were feeding on the sin of the people. They weren't serving because they wanted the people to be made holy and right with God, but rather they wanted the meat. Sin, an opportunity to eat steak and not to serve God. And so he says in verse 9, it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. The priests and the people are all committing sins in that transaction. And the priests will not be spared the judgment and the punishment. Sin in the land. The leaders bear the responsibility. And then we see in verse 3 more of the results of this sin and this failure of leadership. We see that a society that, lo- uh, a society that loses its mind when it makes an idol out of sex will be ruined. A society that loses its mind by making an idol out of sex will be ruined. They shall eat, verse 10, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom and wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. So this adultery being spoken of here, this unfaithfulness, is both physical and spiritual. They were sort of combined. Because in the cult of Baal worship, Baal was considered to be the god of fertility, the god of thunder, the one who made it rain, the one who made uh, crops grow, the one who made the animals multiply. And so they would worship Baal, and the way that you worshiped the god of fertility was through the sexual act. And so this is what the people are doing as they run after Baal. They're also committing great sexual immorality. In verse 12, he says, My people... And we see how stupid this is, right? My people inquire after a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. These people were going to to just a piece of wood, maybe that had been carved or shaped into a walking stick. And they were asking this walking stick to give them wisdom from God. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. And they have left their God to play the whore. And they sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth, because the shade is good. These are types of trees. Therefore, when we see therefore in the prophet, we know a judgment is coming. uh, coming. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. But I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Now what he's saying there is, normally, this is kind of how it works. When men have traditionally been in charge and someone commits adultery or does something that's wrong sexually, who always gets the blame? The woman. And the Lord is saying, I'm not just going to blame the woman here. We're just not going to punish the women for this sin because it's the men that are keeping this business going. 
The men are the ones going to the prostitutes. The men are the ones committing adultery, causing these women who have less power than them and less influence than them. And the men should be leading anyway, and they're not. And so there's going to be guilt enough to go around and punishment enough to go around because these people who don't have any understanding of what God, who God is and what He requires shall come to ruin. A society that loses its mind by making an idol of sex will be ruined. And there's so much to say about this, I don't even know where to start. How much time do I have? Okay. I do think that there will be a reckoning for the American sexual revolution for the rampant practice of abortion in the last 50 years, for the normalizing of heterosexual fornication, homosexual fornication, the celebration and the normalization of gender dysphoria, the glorification of promiscuity and immorality in our culture, especially in movies and in music, liberating sexual activity from God's good design for it, has caused it to become an ultimate thing in our society, such that I would say that in this nation, sex has become an idol. It's become something that we just can't imagine people living without. The messaging is that sexual expression and fulfillment is something so important that they redefined the meaning of marriage in 1973 when they allowed no-fault divorce in California. And then that spread throughout the nation. Then we redefined marriage again in 2013 in the Bergefell decision to allow same-sex marriage. Now, what do both of these show? What, did the, what does no-fault divorce and the normalization of same-sex marriage show? Well, you can talk about all sorts of political things, but we're at church, so let's talk about God's Word, okay? So this is, this is my rule on politics in the pulpit. I'm not going to get into politics from the pulpit, but when the politics gets in the pulpit, I'm going to hit back. All right, so here, here's the deal. When you reject God's design for marriage, you're rejecting Him. So all of, when, when the society decided, we don't want what you've told us, we rejected God, we rejected His wisdom. Just in the same way we studied in Sunday school, those people that were building that city, and they were building that tower, they said, we need to do this or we'll be dispersed all over the earth. What had God told them to do? To go all over the earth. So whenever they did, built that city, and they were, they, that city and that tower were a monument to their rejection of God's Word. And when we decide, hey, Lord, we know better what marriage is than you do. We're not just rejecting His Word. We're rejecting Him. We're rejecting the One who's given us His, His wisdom and has revealed Himself to us. And that's not a political thing. That's a moral thing. And so cultural forces now, what are they doing? They're normalizing and, and moving to normalize even uh, in education programs to our children the transgender movement, which on an individual re- uh, level is a rejection of God's design. God makes you like this. That's what you are. And for you to say, I'm not going to be that. I'm actually this, or God, you caused me to be born in the wrong body, or whatever it is. That's a rejection of God. Let's just call it for what it is. And so what's happening whenever people on an individual level, and even as a nation, reject God's design 
for gender and sexuality is that people are actually going to hospitals and being mutilated. And they're being harmed in ways we don't even understand yet with hormone therapy and surgeries. And why? Because the God of sexual expression and identity must be served. Everyone must bow down to the self and to feelings. Because the self and the individual and the feelings have become God. They've become the idol. And this is a complete rejection of what God has revealed to us regarding His will, His design, His instruction, and His desires for His people that He loves. And it is, it's insane for us to believe that we can exchange the truth for a lie, that we can reject the knowledge of God that He's given us about who He is and how we are to live and what our purpose is on this planet. You can't reject God and His will and His ways and His design and expect to have a healthy society. <clears throat> so the sociologists are looking at all this stuff. And they'll say, well, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to just wait and see what happens with gender-affirming care. We'll have to wait and see what happens when you redefine marriage. And we'll have to just wait and see if pornography is really bad. And if it'll have negative effects on our young men. We don't have to wait and see. We know where it leads, and it all leads straight to hell. And there are enough of us in here who've sinned enough. And there's enough of us in here that have sinned enough sexually that where we know where it leads. We know that it leads to regret and shame. We know this. And so when we act like it's not true, we are deceiving ourselves. And we, it's, it's all self-deception. The culture says you've got to go along with it. But not right here, huh? Because what do we got right here? We've got our Bibles open on our laps. And we might walk out of here, and we do this because we're sinners. We walk out of here and we forget the truth. We forget who we are. We're drawn to those high places, so to speak, those shade trees of sin. We're, we're, we're drawn to say, those crackers, even though I know they're the poisonous crackers, they sure look good. But here, when we come in here, it's almost like every week God gives us the grace of a moment of clarity. And somehow we're sitting here and we're saying, this is the moment of clarity when I, I'm thinking straight and I can understand what's right and what's wrong and I'm acknowledging God's word is true and God's word is right. And we have this moment of clarity and we understand that the orientation that really matters is being oriented to God's will. And boy... I'm saying this to you and I'm repenting at the same time because I know how easy it is for me to believe lies, for how easy it is for me to indulge uh, my own flesh in the things that I do and act and th say and think and all these things. But we have to sit here and take a good look at that box of crackers and we have to learn how he's told us to live in this area and we have to hold the line because if we don't hold the line, we're the ones who know that you don't worship the creation, you worship the creator. We know this. And so a society that loses its mind sexually is going to come to ruin. It's not wait and see if it'll happen. It's going to happen. And if God's people are no different than the world, how, are the, how is the world going to see the better way? 
this pronouncement of destruction because of their harlotry, because of their idolatry to the Baals, is going to lead them to ruin. And so in verses 15 through 18, God gives a warning to the nation of Judah. Remember, that's the southern kingdom. And the warning at verse 15 is steer clear from those sinners. Look at verse 15. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let Judah not become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon. And swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? No. Sin separates. Sin has separated Israel from their God. And sin is separating here Israel from Judah. And that separation sometimes is necessary. Uh, Not all of us have a strength to hang out with people that would lead us in the wrong direction and not be led in the wrong direction. And so sometimes to avoid being caught up in sin ourselves, we must steer clear from those people. Judah's told here, don't go up there. Those people will lead you astray. Don't worship with them. We all know there are people and things and circumstances and entertainments and all sorts of things that might drag us into sin. Here's the warning. Steer clear of it. It won't pay off for you. Look at verse 17. Ephraim was a large northern tribe and sometimes Israel was referred to as Ephraim. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Don't go near that idol worshiper. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers deeply love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. But how can we leave people alone? How is that loving? Well, we certainly don't want to shun people, and we always want to be open to whatever God is doing. But what good is salt and light if it's lured by the world into being just like the world? So there's a fine line that we have to walk, isn't there? There's a fine line we have. To remember that rejection of the knowledge of God leads to sin and that sin always leads to ruin and that ultimately ruin leads to shame. But here's the good news. That's not the final word. So listen to what, he's, what, I, what I want to say here in verse 19. He says, A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. As I said, we don't want to shun people. We don't want to uh, be mean. Uh, we, we certainly want to always have a hand outstretched. And here's the thing. If that's our posture, I can't go with you into that. But here I am if you want to talk. Here I am if you want to know why you're miserable. If, here's, if you want to know why you've been ruined by these choices that you've made, let's talk about what God's Word, is, what God's word says. Let me introduce you to God in this situation. The great thing is that sin is not the final word. One of God's gifts to us, again, is to be able to sit here in a moment of clarity and learn from the Word of God what He would have us to know. I hope you're encouraged today that you're here or if you're listening on Mixler or watching on YouTube or Facebook because you're sick, that you made an effort today. You made an effort today to get up, to get your clothes on, to to come to church. You could have done a bunch of other things, but today you decided you were not going to reject the Word of God. 
you are not going to reject the knowledge of God. It's, it's hard to hear this. It's hard to preach this. But the reason that we came here today is because we want to know who God is. What He's like. Well, let, let's say what He is. He's the Lord. He's given us His law. Uh, when we learn it, we are taught that we are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We realize that we are dead in our trespasses and sins spiritually. We are bound for hell and eternal condemnation. We are idolatrous people who love to eat those poisonous crackers. We are unclean people and we dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And we see that box of crackers and it's full of poison. It's an arm reach away and sitting in the pew or standing behind the pulpit We cringe to think about how often we love to eat those crackers. How we speak the idle word. How we gossip. How we have bad attitudes. How we backbite. How we have a judgmental spirit. Lustful thoughts. Greed. I mean, sometimes aren't we eating those crackers with both hands? I think so. And we're the ones who know better. Paul knew better. Paul knew what the law taught him. Paul said, the law is good. I know it's good. And when I read the law and I read those Ten Commandments, what it did is it showed me that I was dead. It, in a sense, he said, killed him. And in Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, Paul says something that I think we could all say. He says, I do not understand my own actions. You ever feel that way, Christian? That we know the truth and we willfully reject it? I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. That's hard to read all that. But I think I understand. every time I've read that in my life, I've understood exactly what he was saying. I don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. He says, so I find that there's this law within me. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, like a box of crackers of poison in the Volkswagen bug. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive through the law of sin that dwells in my members. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am. You know, today we've looked at Hosea chapter 4, and we can come to that conclusion, can't we? Wretched person that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's going to deliver me? Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He goes on to say, but isn't that an interesting question there in verse 24? Who will deliver me? Maybe today you've been convicted of your sin. Maybe we're convicted of of how we uh, so compromise with the world. 
and we say to ourselves, who will deliver me? How can I be saved from my own self? How can I be saved because I don't even understand my own actions? I want to do right, but I can't do right. Here's the good news. There is a rescue. There is a hope. There is a promise for those who trust in Jesus, who agree that He is right, that His decree and His will are perfect. That's what it means to trust Him. And so when we think about that bitter cracker, that poisonous cracker, we must also always think of Christ and His perfection and His love for us. We must remember that we know the destructive nature of sin and we hate it. And even though sin wins the battle occasionally, Christ has won the war. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, though the sin is awful, though the sin destroys, though the sin has consequence, though the sin ruins, and though we are caught up in it and there's nothing we can do about it because our best righteousness is filthy rags, the good news is Christ has won the war. It's not your responsibility to win this war. That's the beauty of the Gospel we've been learning on Sunday nights is that Jesus Christ is the good one. And we needed Him to be the good one. If we could be good on our own and make ourselves acceptable to God, we wouldn't need the Gospel. But the Gospel tells us that Jesus has come to be good because we were not good enough ourselves. There was nothing we can do, so He offers the rescue. God's Word warns us. And when we read verses like Hosea chapter 4, passages like Hosea chapter 4, we're shown our need. And when we see our need, what a blessing it is in these moments of clarity to turn to Christ. And to see that Scripture also holds out the offer today to you of a Savior. Will you repent and trust Jesus? Who needs Jesus today? Who needs to be baptized? Who needs to finally make things right between themselves and their Creator? Come to Christ and be rescued today.